you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. As we continue today this ongoing uh, exposition uh, that we're actually coming near to the end of our journey through uh, this, uh, these opening 11 chapters, which give us the foundational stories, not only for all humanity, world history, but for understanding the Bible itself. And so we're in Genesis and chapter 10. Genesis and chapter 10. Let me invite you as you're able to stand in honor of the reading and hearing of God's Word. In our exposition, we're going to be looking at the entirety of uh, the chapter, but I'm just going to read some portions of it. And let's start off in Genesis uh, 10 and verse uh, 1. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. Verse 2 begins, the sons of Japheth. Verse 5. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Verse 6 begins, and the sons of Ham. Verse 19, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Verse 21, unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born. And now verses 31 and 32. These are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues and their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. May God Bless today the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, as we come again to meditate upon thy word, to hear it proclaimed, we ask, O God, for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We need light uh, apart from thy spirit. Uh, Many things here will be cloaked in darkness, and we will fumble around, but we know that with the Spirit's help, Uh, We will be given light, not merely to learn uh, new facts, but to learn spiritual truths and to apply them to our own lives and understand our own lives and our own desires and our own callings. And so give us today uh, insight into thy word and sustain us as we hear it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that Genesis 10 is not one of the more popular chapters within the opening account in Genesis of the primordial or primeval history of the creation of the world. And it's not one of the more popular chapters, indeed, in the entire Bible. I'm supposing that there are very few people who have ever claimed to have found a life verse in Genesis 10. Lots of those found in other chapters, but I'm doubting, I I would be amazed if someone here today said they have a life verse that comes out of Genesis 10. Few of us have likely ever memorized a verse from this chapter. We've never included it among the quarterly memory verses. Who knows? Maybe we will in the future. 
I'm not sure anyone would cite this chapter as giving them great aid in their search for piety and godliness. In fact, I think this is the first time that I have ever based an entire sermon on this chapter alone. If this chapter were a landmass, it would be flyover country, a place you have to pass over or through on your way from one interesting place to another, much as some elites go from the East Coast to the West Coast and everything else is flyover country. It's a genealogy. It's a listing of the descendants of the sons of Noah. The kind of thing one might find written down in a family Bible. I don't know if any of you and your families have one of those kind of Bibles that's maybe been passed down. You have a listing of this generation and the next generation and so forth. In this case, Noah's family Bible is in the Bible. That's something interesting to contemplate. His family record, his genealogy, the listing of his sons and these descendants of them is here in the Bible. Genesis chapter 10 is traditionally, has traditionally been given by Christian interpreters the title, The Table of the Nations. And we find that that word nations used twice in the authorized version of the final verse. If you look at verse 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. And you also see that that word nations used once in the, in the, the verse right before it in verse 31 after their nations. And that's actually repeated at the end of each one of the, the listing of these sons, verse 20, and in their nations, verse 5, in their nations. And it's the Hebrew word goyim, goy. Uh, the nations here are being listed. And so this is kind of a, this is the United Nations chapter. It's, it's listing all the nations of the earth that were formed uh, after the time of the flood. All of this is being given in preparation for our understanding of what God willing we'll look at next week. And that is in Genesis 11, the account of the Tower of Babel and the scattering and the confusion linguistically of the nations. But before we get to chapter 11, we get to travel through chapter 10. I hope by the time today that we finish uh, this survey of Genesis 10, this overlooked chapter, we might be able to find some points of interest that actually will help us to understand and to appreciate better the workings of God in the world and especially his working out his plan of salvation for all nations. For all nations. We think about Genesis particularly Genesis 1 through 11, the primordial history, as a book of creation. And it is a book of creation. It's foundational. We said this. You're not going to understand the Bible unless you understand Genesis. And you're not going to understand Genesis unless you understand Genesis 1 through 11. It's foundational for everything else. It's a book of creation, but it's also a book of providence. See, God is the creator he made the world in the space of six days and all very good, but he's also the provider and the sustainer. And he also has a plan of salvation. And he's providing the circumstances. Things are a mystery to us. We look at things. We, we see what happens in our little life and we're unaware of, of so much more that happens all over the world. And... God, though, has a mind 
that with which he is directing the course of all things towards his ends, his purposes. That's being laid out for us today in this chapter. So let's turn now and let's look at uh, this chapter. And as we uh, try to exposit it together, if we look at Genesis 10, it just might seem to be to be a jumble, a list of names. But actually, when you look at it a little more closely, it's been very carefully constructed. Very carefully written. This is like if, you know, your aunt has that family Bible and, you know, you can tell when her handwriting gets there, everything's very clear and it's written very carefully. This is actually very, very carefully written. It starts off in verse 1 with an introduction. Verse 1 is the introduction. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. And it ends with a conclusion, verse 32. These were the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So it's got an introduction, verse 1. It's got a conclusion. And in between that introduction and that conclusion, which frame it, literarily frame it, there are three lists of the descendants of the three sons of Noah. In verses 2 through 14, there is the list of the sons of Japheth. In verses 15 through 20, there's a list of the sons of Ham. And in verses 21 through 31, there is a list of the sons of Shem. I mean, this is the type of chapter that people who are like accountants, you would love this chapter. People who are scientists and engineers, this is your chapter. It's not, it's not a chapter for somebody like me, you know, who, who, who is, uh, you know, does things in a different kind of way. But I'm glad you guys have a chapter in the Bible. It's not one of the most popular ones, but you've got your chapter right here. It's very carefully thought out, very structured, very structured for you people who like structures and lists. And, and that this is your chapter. Now, before we move to the three lists of the sons, let's, let's start off looking again at the introduction. The introduction is important. Now these, verse 1, are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. That opening, those opening words, now these are the generations. That is, some of you might remember from previous uh, sermons in this series, that is what, what is known as a stock phrase. It's a stock opening, and Moses, the author, guided by the Holy Spirit, often uses this phrase. Now, these are the generations when he's telling us, I'm starting to tell you something new. Pay attention. I'm going I'm to start telling you something new. Now, these are the generations. And in Hebrew, the word for generations is toledot. And so these are called toledot. Sections And so the word Toledo, again, means generations. And so just look back for a second and look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. Here's something new, in other words, in Genesis 2, 4. Look at Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. We've got the, the word Toledot uh, telling us that something new is coming. Look at chapter 6 and verse 9. Now these are the generations of Noah. And now look at chapter 10 and verse 1. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Something new. And it continues even after this. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generation, generations of Shem. And look at verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. And so it's, it's a way of telling us, here's something new. I'm going to transition to tell you something new. 
And in a way, when we get to Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, and we read, now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, part of what we're being told is Moses saying, okay, I've told you about the flood. I've told you what happened with the ark. And I've told you about how God saved uh, Noah and his sons and the inhabitants of the ark and also how he let them come out and he entered into a covenant with them and he put a token of a bow in the rain clouds. And remember what also he told us. Remember how, remember how all that ended? We talked about this last week. The failure of Noah. That's a sad account. Noah plants a vineyard. Uh, he gets drunk and uh, he is uncovered. Look at chapter 9, verse 21. And so he's told us all of that. And now, again, there's a, there's a transition. Now he's going to start to describe what we could call the post-flood world. Now we get to hear about the post-flood world. And guess what? We're still living in the post-flood world. We're living in the time after the flood and we're waiting for the time when Christ will come again in glory. So we're living between these times. We're still there. And so he, 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 he's going to take us back though to Noah and that, instead of talking about Noah, he's going to start talking about the sons and the descendants that come from them. And of course, Noah's sons again are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The first time that they're mentioned is back in Genesis 5. Look at verse 32, Genesis 5. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those were his three sons. And, of course, when the Lord determined to destroy the world with a flood, and he gave uh, Noah the instructions as to how to build the ark, uh, he told him that he was to put in the ark his three sons and their wives. Look at Genesis 6, verse 18. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. There were eight persons who were on the ark. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And so God uh, made this provision for them. And when the flood subsided, God specifically told Noah uh, and his sons and their wives who come forth from the ark. Look at, look at chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. And God spake unto the, and to Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. And, as we've also noted before, God then blessed not only Noah, but also his sons. Look at Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. They, they received the dominion mandate. This had been given to the first human beings before the fall. And then after the fall, it's still given to Noah and to his sons. And when God established that covenant that I mentioned, he didn't just establish it with Noah, but also with his sons, with his seed after him. So if you look at Genesis 9, Verses 8 and 9, And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And so he's telling us something new, but he's also telling us something that's in continuity with what he's said before. And even in, at the end of chapter 9, there's a mention of them again. Look at verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then also, look at verse 19. These are the three sons of Noah. And of them was the whole earth overspread. I mentioned this last week. They, they fulfilled, they were obeyed the command to be, be fruitful and multiply and to, to fill the earth, replenish the earth. And so now we're told there's no problem with populating the earth after the flood. That, uh, that, that from the sons of uh, Noah, there come all the people who live upon the earth in the post-flood world. And I noted last uh, Lord's Day that when the Apostle Paul was in Athens and he was up on Mars Hill and he was talking to the, the pagan uh, uh, Athenians and he was trying to get some common ground with them, 
He told them, we all come from a common origin. I, Paul, the Jew, come from a common origin with you Gentiles. We all come from Adam through the line of Noah and his three sons. And I uh, quoted Paul in his speech on Mars Hill in Acts 17, verse 26. He says, And God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations. One of the things we learn from these chapters, Genesis 9 and 10, is we're all related. We're all related. We talk about our church sometimes being like a family reunion. But in truth, uh, we human beings are all part of the family of mankind. And we literally are related. Everyone on the earth comes from these times after the flood. Comes from... Uh, the lines of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so, now we can look at these lines of the three sons, for from them will come the various ancient nations of the earth. And so there's unity, they all come from Noah, but as we shall see, there's also diversity and differences in each one of these nations that are founded upon the earth. And so we're going to begin by looking at the line of Japheth, which begins in verse 2, has kind of the title, The Sons of Japheth. Now I pause for a moment and notice something. The first son whose line is going to be listed, listed is Japheth. Japheth and then Ham and then Shem. But if you have a, a sensitive ear, uh, you will notice that that's a change because previously, every time these three sons have been mentioned, Shem has always been mentioned first. So if you look all the way back at uh, chapter 5 and verse 32 again, and Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's the way we say it, that's the way we memorize it. So why does he start with Japheth? Why does he begin with, with him and not with Shem? And I think we get the answer if we look ahead to verse 21. Where it says, Unto Shem also the father of all the children of Abur, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born. Now I have to tell you there's some controversy about how this verse has been translated. But as it's rendered here, in the authorized version, it seems to tell us that actually Japheth was the eldest of the three sons of Noah. This means Shem was the younger, but it will be through Shem that Abraham will come, and it will be through Abraham that Isaac will come. It will be through Isaac that Jacob or Israel will come. It will be through Jacob that the 12 tribes of Israel will come, including the tribe of Judah. And from the tribe of Judah will come David, and from David will come the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the line of Shem is pretty important, although he is apparently the younger, and Japheth was the older. It's going to be going to go in the the order of their births. He's going to start with Japheth and he's going to end with Shem. As I said, this point is somewhat disputed. Some modern interpreters say that verse 21 should read that Japheth uh, was actually not the oldest, that it's saying that Shem was the older brother of Japheth. If you read something like the English Standard Version, it will translate it a little bit different. But the older interpreters like Matthew Poole and others read it as describing Japheth as the elder, and so that's what we're going to assume as we attempt to interpret this passage. Whether Shem was the eldest or not, though, his is the line of divine promise, of election, of covenant. And that is why uh, his uh, listing will come Last, It will come climactically here in Genesis 10. 
And I believe, I believe the, the proper way to understand it is the traditional way, and I, I think this means Japheth was the elder. And if that's the case, it also introduces a theme that some of you may be familiar with. I think I've spoken about it before. It's a theme that you find in the Old Testament. If you read the Bible, you're familiar with this. And that is the Old Testament theme of the blessing of the second born. Or the blessing of the latter born. Because usually in the ancient Near Eastern culture, if you were the firstborn, you got all the prizes. You inherited everything. You were the golden boy. But when you read through the Old Testament, um, God by his Holy Spirit subverted that. And it's usually not the firstborn uh, in the Old Testament who is the bearer of the covenant, but it's the secondborn or the latterborn. Think about Abraham. Abraham's firstborn will be Ishmael from his servant Hagar. But the blessing, the covenant blessing, will be upon his secondborn through uh, Isaac, born of Sarah. Jacob will be in the womb of Rebekah, his mother, with Esau, his twin. And Esau will be born first. And Jacob will come out of the womb grasping his heel. But who will get the blessing? The firstborn Esau? No, the secondborn Jacob. As Paul will write in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and following, for the children, talking about Jacob and Esau, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Think about that theme, the blessing of the second born. I know some of you, some of you kids might say, well, huh. I'm not the firstborn, but I must be more blessed. It's not a biblical principle overall. It's just something, it's a, it's, a, it was a, it's a special act of God's providence in the Old Testament that's described. So sorry, if you're firstborn, don't start having grievance against the Old Testament. If you're secondborn, relax. It doesn't mean you might have some special quality, superpowers, just because you're the secondborn or the latterborn. But it's a theme. Think about... Um, Think about when the prophet Samuel was told to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint one of his sons to be king. And the oldest was brought out. God said, it's not the oldest. All the other sons were brought out. And finally, uh, Samuel says, don't you have anybody else in the house? And he says, well, there's little David. He's out keeping the sheep. We'll send, he's the youngest. Let's send him in here. God says, that's it. I want little David. David is the one who will be the king. What about the Lord Jesus Christ? He was the firstborn of Mary, but he came late in time in the line of David. He came at, actually after the, the last kings of, of, from the line of David were gone. But he came unexpectedly from the latter line of David. It is the mystery of God choosing what seems lesser, latter, weaker in the eyes of the world to be the vehicle for the working out of His will. Why does He do things like this? Well, we could, we could surmise He does things like this so that He alone might get the maximal glory. So no one would think that the covenant survived because of the greatness of Jacob or the greatness of David. This is why Christ came as a servant, as a servant. And so I think it's likely, as our translators here take it, that Japheth was the elder and Shem was the younger. But we've got to begin all that to say, we've got to begin with Japheth, and that breaks the pattern of how the names are normally mentioned. Let's, let's talk about the sons of Jacob. Again, let's, let's turn to the family Bible. Look at these names, see if we can sort this out. Right, so we start here in verse 2. 
And there are seven sons who are mentioned. The sons of Japheth. Gomer, that's kind of odd because later that's used for the name of the woman who becomes the wife of the prophet Hosea. But here it's a man's name, Gomer. And Magog. And Madai. And Javan. And Tubal. Remember the name Tubal? There was a, there was a, a, a descendant from Cain who was known as Tubal Cain. And Meshach. And Tiras. And so there's a mention here of the seven sons that, that came from Japheth. And then in verse 3, and this, ha- this is going to happen several times in these lines, there, he will not tell about every one of the initial offspring, but he will choose just a couple of them who have some significance. And so he starts off in verse 3, the, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Riphath, and Togar Ma. And then he, then he trans, transitions after mentioning those three sons of Gomer. Uh, he turns to another one of uh, Japheth's sons, Javan. And he mentions four of his sons. Verse 4. And the sons of Javan, Elisha and Tarshish, Kittim and Dodanim. Tarshish is an interesting name. This shows up in the book of Jonah. When Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, where does he go? He gets on a ship to go to Tarshish. And, and really what's happening here is these are the sons, but, the, but they're going to become the founders of nations. Just like the 12 tribes of Israel become the founders of the tribes, these are the founders of nations. And many people think Tarshish uh, traditionally was referred to the land of Spain. And these other names in Hebrew are, are here in plurals, Kittim. Dodanim. He becomes the father of, of, of peoples. And so if you, if you look through this short list, Japheth, although he's the elder, this is the shortest list. And if you were to count through this list, this is going to be important. Hold on to this factoid. This is going to be important. You will find that there are 14 descendants of Japheth who are listed here. And then he says two things about them in verse 5. First of all, he says, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands. From these were the inhabitants, we might say, of the furthermost and distant isles. And this is the way they talked in the ancient world. Mainly, mainly landlocked peoples, but if they could get in a boat... And you go and you travel, you go to the farthest isles, the farthest shores that you can go to. These, these are the people who are going to be, live the furthest out from the land of Israel. The furthest away. They're going to live in the isles. What's interesting is if you know your Bible well, you'll know, especially in the prophet Isaiah, there are many prophecies there about how God will make himself known to the people who live the furthest off. Those who are in the isles. For example, in Isaiah 49, verse 1, it says, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. Or in Isaiah 51, verse 5, it says, My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, and mine arm shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me. And on mine arms shall they trust. The people in the isles who are the farthest away are waiting for me to make myself known unto them. We'll come back to this probably later. But remember what Christ, the risen Christ, said to his apostles in Acts 1? Before he ascended, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You will go to the isles. There are all these scattered nations. And it's interesting, if you know the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15, where was Paul planning to go when he wrote the letter to the church at Rome? Spain, Tarshish, that's where he was going to preach the gospel. He got arrested in Jerusalem. Some believe he 
got out and made it there eventually. The gospel made it there eventually, no doubt. But And then look at the second half of verse 5. The second thing that is said, everyone after his tongue, after their families in their nations. This is a description of the many languages and the family groups or clans that will develop among these various peoples. And this is interesting because there's not going to be this confusion until after the Tower of Babel, which is going to be described in Genesis 11. In fact, at the time of the Tower of Babel, if you look at Genesis 11, verse 1, it says, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. But this is, this is kind of giving us a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. After Babel, in these places where these people are dispersed to the isles and they're separated to clans, they will, they will speak different languages. And indeed, we know there are thousands of languages upon the earth, right? Thousands of languages. I remember when we went to Malaysia um, and we were worshiping with the Chinese Christians there. I thought, well, you know, maybe they'll be speaking in Mandarin or something like that. And you know what the languages the Christians use in Malaysia? They use English. Because... Among the Chinese, there are so many dialects that they don't, even the Chinese people don't all speak the same language, and so it's better to choose a common language they can all understand, English. But the people in the Isles had these different languages. Let's move on now to second. Let's look at the line of Ham, Ham's line. And you're going to remember Ham because we talked about him last week. I remember... When Noah got drunk and was uncovered, Ham did something shameful that's not exactly described for us. And because of that, Noah prophesied that God was going to place a curse upon him that would be worked out, though especially in one of his sons named Canaan. Look back at Genesis 9, verse 25. Well, let's look at verse 24. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. By the way, that says he was younger. I think that means younger than Japheth. So that's, this adds to my argument here. Um, but cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. The lowest of the servants. A vanity of vanities. Remember in Ecclesiastes means the lowest of vanities. So this, this construction in Hebrew, servant of servants, means the lowest of servants. And so we begin with the, the line now of Ham. The title, verse 6, and the sons of Ham. And there's listed there in verse 6, four sons. Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. Again, these sons will become the founders of people groups, and if you read the rest of the Bible, you may well know that some of these names are used for later nations. The Cushites are used within the Bible to speak of the Ethiopians. The Mizraim are the people of Egypt, the Egyptians. The people of Put are the people that we would know today as being Libyans from North Africa, the Mediterranean. And then the people of Canaan are the people who would live, inhabit the land of Israel, the pagans who would inhabit the land of Israel. And he continues, look at verse 7. He's going to give us a deeper dive on the descendants of Cush. And the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ra'amah, and Sabteka, and the sons of Ra'amah, Sheba, and Dedan. So it does a little, another little split off to tell us about this, the, this, the descendants, the sons of Rama. And when I, when I read that, I, my ears perked up a little bit as I, as I heard that one because um, I remember that we've, we've sung a number of times Psalm 72. We sang it recently. 
because it's a it's a it's a psalm that talks about I think it talks about the, the uh, prophesies about the kings who visit Christ with their gifts. And in Psalm 72, verse 10, it says, The kings of Tarshish and of the isle shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Saba shall offer gifts. And then in verse 8, another son of Cush is mentioned. And Cush begat Nimrod. This is a name we recognize maybe. I don't know how it came about that the name Nimrod became a term of derision. You're a Nimrod. Because as he is described here uh, in the table of nations, he's described in a very admiring manner. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. And it says of him, especially in verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, before Jehovah. Implying perhaps that he knew Jehovah. He was a mighty and accomplished man before the Lord. I don't know how it is that Nimrod has become a negative term for us today. There seems, in Moses' day, there seems even to have been a, a... a saying that 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 um, exalted Nimrod. Look at the second half of verse nine. Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter, or, or, or he says, "Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord." Maybe we need to maybe we need to revive that when we see a kid, you know, playing kickball. One of them makes a good kick. We say, "Oh, you're just like Nimrod, mighty before the Lord. Good job." Because um, that seems to have been a saying or a proverb of some sort uh, during the time of uh, Moses. And then it is said of him, look at verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. There's some question also about how to properly interpret this. In the authorized version, there's a little note there uh, that that gives us a little more information, especially about verse eleven, as it says, "Out of out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Calah." And it's a question of whether Nimrod was the person who went out. There's there's an alternative translation of the Authorized Version, which says instead of uh, instead of and went forth Asher, it's he Nimrod went out into Assyria. And so Asher is another name for the ancient peoples of Assyria. Um, And apparently Nimrod is being given credit for the founding of Nineveh. And again, Nineveh is one of those names that comes up in your mind because that's the great city that Jonah was sent to to prophesy against. And, And remember, Jonah called on them to repent, although he didn't really want them to repent because he knew God would be merciful to them. He wanted to see God's wrath laid out on them. And what did God do? God was merciful to them. God was merciful to the Ninevites. But it also mentions that he was there. He, that he was the, his kingdom was Babel. Of course, that's going to be mentioned in, in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And in the land of Shinar, if you look over at Genesis 11, verse 2, it talks about they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. I know it's a family Bible, right? It's it's a bunch of people's names. Are you guys still hanging with me here? We're going to get to some points later. You engineers love this chapter, so hang with me. Let's look. Let's look at some more of the family history, and uh, we're going to start. He's going to start telling you about Mizraim. Look at verse 13. And Mizraim begat Ludim and Anamim and Lehabim and Naphtuhim and Pothrusim and Kosluhim, out of whom came Philistim and Kaphtorim. What, what name looks familiar there? The Philistines. The Philistines have their roots in the people of Ham. 
And if you know your Bibles, of course, you know that the, the Philistines will be a burr in the side of Israel for many generations. They will be there in the days of the judge, Samson. Uh, they will be there in the life of King David when Goliath, their champion, mocks not only David, but also most grievously the one true God. And then finally, for Ham, we have the listing of, of Canaan. Remember, Canaan's the one who's said to be cursed. Look at verse 15. And Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn. We know Sidon, the Sidonians. They're mentioned throughout the Bible. And Heth. Some say Heth is, is the founder of the Hivites, others of the Hittites. But some of these names now are going to become very familiar as we begin to hear them. Look at verse 16. And the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And why are these familiar? If you've read the Bible and you, and you read the book of Joshua, when the people of Israel conquer the land, they, they were taken into slavery, into bondage in the, in the, the days of Moses, and they're, they're led back out. They're released from bondage, and then under Joshua, they conquer the land, and they have to fight against all these pagan peoples that inhabit the land. And they all come from the line of Canaan. We get the final word about uh, the people of Canaan in verse 18. And afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And then it does something a little different that didn't fit. Otherwise, it tells something about the borders of their habitation. Look at verse 19. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza. As thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah and Admah and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. And even as we're reading this in 2024 now, we see some names we recognize. Gaza. That been in the news lately for anybody? That, that was a boundary for the people of, of the Canaanites. And there's also a mention in verse 19 there of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, you recognize those cities, don't you? They were, those were the famous or infamous twin cities that were known for debauchery and sin. And they will have fire and brimstone rain down upon them. And one of the things we're sort of being told just by the circumstances here is the failure of Noah, Noah's drunkenness and the shame that he brought upon himself through his being uncovered results eventually in the debaucheries of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you count through the names, you will find some 35 persons mentioned from the line of Ham. The summary is given to us in verse 20, and it sounds just like the summary that was given uh, at the end of the, the, the line of Japheth. These are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Okay, let's get to the last one. The Shemites. The line of Shem. Look at verse 21. Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Abel, the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born. If you come from the line of Shem, you are a Shemite or a Semite. If you oppose the line of Shem, you are an anti-Shemite or an anti-Semite. You're against those who come from the line of Shem. Moses begins by calling out, especially that he was, he was the father of Eber. If that sounds familiar, that's the root for our word Hebrew. And again, it mentions he was the younger brother of Japheth, who was the elder. Five sons are mentioned in verse 22. The children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arpadax, and Lud, and Aram. And one thing you might notice is that name Arpadax will show up in the genealogy of our Lord in Luke 3, verse 36. It will be through his line that the Lord Jesus will come according to the flesh. Next is Eber, the father of the Hebrews. Look at verse 25. And unto 
Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And then there's a whole listing, starting in verse 26, going down to verse 29, of 13 sons of Joktan. Verse 26, and Joktan begat Almodad, and Sheleph, and Hazar Mavet, and Jera, and Hadoram, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Jogtan. We're almost at the end of it, guys. The place of their dwelling is noted. And their dwelling, verse 30, was from Misha, as thou goest unto Sefer, a mount of the east. And then we've got the summary, verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, after their families, and after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. And then we got verse 32, which closes the whole thing up. The conclusion, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. By the way, if you look through the line of Shem, you'll find 21 names. 14 names from Japheth, 35 from Ham, 21 from Shem. That makes the total 70. 70. 70 is, in the Bible, an important number. It's a, it's a number of completion, a number of perfection. It's 10 times Sabbath. Um, so there were 70 nations that were founded after the time of the flood. Okay. You've heard... You would know what you'll be able to say. You can write this on the flyleaf of your Bible. On Sunday, January the 14th of 2024, I heard someone preach a sermon on Genesis 10. I, I'll bet you, you can, I bet you can uh, compare notes with your friends and find that doesn't happen very often. Why is this careful list given here to us? I want to suggest something to you about this. I think, oddly enough, Genesis 10 is a missions chapter. It's a missions chapter. If I was invited to, to preach at a commissioning of missionaries who are going to be sent out to the far corners of the world, Genesis 10 just might be the type of chapter I would choose. And my guess is when it has been preached, I'm guessing that's that's very often been the, the case, the situation when it has been preached. Because it's about a God who has a plan of redemption. And remember how that plan of redemption was was prophesied, it was foreshadowed right after the fall in Genesis 3 verse 15, the passage we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first mentioned proclamation of the gospel as as God says to the serpent and to the woman I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel there was a prophecy there that would come from the seed of the woman one who would overcome Satan the serpent that salvation would would come Mankind, sinful man and the serpent, however, are not going to go easily. Their rebellion will encompass the pride that will lead to Babel that we'll read about in Genesis 11. And that will result in the division of languages. And see, these peoples, these nations go out into the wide world. It'd be hard enough to take the gospel to all these people in the far aisles. But now what makes it even worse? Now they speak thousands of different languages. And there are people that have to learn these languages and they have to translate the Bible into these languages. You see how difficult it's going to be to take the gospel to all these people groups, to all these splintered nations. But friends, this will not thwart the Lord's plan of redemption to seek and to save all kinds of men from all over the earth 
even those from the farthest isles, even if they speak Quiche in Guatemala, there will be someone who will come to the isles and tell them about Christ. You know what the parallel passage is for Genesis 10? It's easy to remember. Luke 10. Luke 10. Look at Luke 10 for just one second. It, it tells us something that's not recorded anywhere else in any of the Gospels. It tells us about a time when Christ sent out a group of men to declare his kingdom, the kingdom of God, as it puts it into every city and place. How many people did he send out? Well, let's read it. Luke 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, Luke 10, 2, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Their commission in verse 9, and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. And we get an account of what happens when they come back. Look at verse 17. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. You think it's just an accident that Christ sent out 70 to preach in his name? I don't think it is at all. I think he was anticipating what was going to happen after he was raised and after he had ascended. That he would be sending messengers to all the nations of the earth. Think about also the account we have in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. When he commissions the apostles. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Or think about what he'll say before he ascends to the right hand of the Father in Acts 1.8. He says to the apostles, power will come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. What has been divided by sin and the fall will be united in Christ. And God would have some from every nation, even the nations that hated him and resisted him the most, even the Philistines, even the Jebusites and the Hivites, even the residents of any Sodom and Gomorrah that he passes by in his mercy and sends his messengers to. And friends, you know what makes it even more astounding? Even to us. How many Gentiles we got here? Even to us. Even to us has the kingdom extended. I don't always recommend John Piper. He kind of got off the rails in some ways, but he wrote a book on missions a few years back, and he, he, he said, where worship is not, mission is. Where men do not know and serve and worship the one true God and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, there must be missions till all the nations here and this is our task isn't it because we're here in Louisa doing that we are ambassadors for Christ wherever we are we're bearing witness on his behalf to the nations amen
We invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give Thee thanks for Thy Word and for even uh, in a passage like this, uh, we see uh, the orderliness with which Thou hast inspired Thy Word and also the, the great uh, wider themes that are here. And help us, O oh God, uh, not to be complacent, but to be uh, people who are going out into the vineyard, though the laborers are few. Uh, we see that the fields are white into harvest. Help us to serve Thee individually, through our families, through our church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.